Um, now, there's a meme coming up on the screen here. I'll read it out for you. I've decided I no longer want to be an adult. If anyone needs me, I'll be in my blanket fort colouring in. Now, you can get that made into a bedspread and a pillow and all sorts of things if you want. I showed this to Liz the other day. We had a bit of a laugh. And parents, I'm sure many of you have got to this point at least once over the school holidays. But it's kind of relatable, isn't it? Have you ever felt that way when things just become that hard, you want to retreat? Maybe difficult circumstances, maybe some personal conflict, or when the stress of life just gets on top. Life is full of hard things. Conflict, worries, pressures, anxieties. There's a constant noise of voices telling us about some new thing that deserves our worry. The news cycle that's full of scary headlines. The never-ending social media feed of perfectly constructed lives. The hard relationships and the pressure to perform. Sometimes we want a break from it all, to stop being an adult and hide in a blanket fort with some colouring in pencils. Why face up to the hard stuff in life when we can just distract ourselves with some other thing? whatever that might look like for you. Maybe that's Facebook, Netflix, junk mail, online gaming, comfort food, blogs, Instagram, researching your next purchase, YouTube, Pinterest, a glass of wine after work, and the endless news feed. These may not be bad things in themselves, but as an avoidance strategy, surely they're not good for us when a wine after work turns into two or three or maybe more, when some TV after dinner turns into a late night binge, when a quiet weekend turns into countless hours alone on your phone. Maybe you can push the grown up worries away for a while, but sometimes they come back in the middle of the night in anxious thought. Avoiding the hard stuff of life might be a pattern for you, and at times, it's a pattern for me. And as a nearly 40-year-old, that's ridiculous to hide under a blanket colouring in. It's, it's childish and it's silly. And perhaps worse, when we hide from our struggles, we're missing out. We're missing out on an opportunity to grow up in Christ. In our passage today, Paul writes to a local church in Philippi who might have been feeling like escaping their circumstances. Paul, the person who planted their church, was in prison and facing a trial that might see him put to death. Epaphroditus, a man who they sent to help Paul, became so sick that he nearly died. The church was facing opposition from outside in their city, and there was also a group distorting the truth of the gospel. And today we'll read about conflict within the church between two well-known Christians there. Could the Philippians be feeling a little bit hard-pressed on every side, overwhelmed with the hard things of life, tired, battered, ready to press pause on living for Jesus and instead hide under a blanket with some colouring pencils? Paul's heartfelt words to this struggling church provide a better place to go with the hard stuff of life.
a place where God meets us where we're at, that in relationship with Jesus, we can face the difficulties with his help along the way. Uh, For those who love structure, our structure for today is Paul first calls the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord, and then he mentions five ways of life to stand firm in. So that's one, agreeing in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, in what we do with anxiety, what we think about, and in following Paul's example. So we'll look at each point now. Let's dive in, starting at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. We start here with a therefore, which looks back at what comes in chapter 3. So from verse 14, Paul talks of pressing on in the Christian life to win the prize. He talks of his heavenward call on his life and urges his readers to follow his example. He reminds them that their citizenship is in heaven, focusing their attention on the sure and certain hope that Christians have. So in view of all of this, stand firm in the Lord. Even though you're struggling, be an adult Christian and keep growing up in Jesus, standing firm in him. But you'll notice too in verse 1, the rich personal language that Paul's using. My brothers and sisters. We are all family united in Jesus. Paul's already talked about unity in Christ in great detail earlier in this letter. And he continues that theme here. You who I love and long for. These are lavish words. He's echoing chapter 1 verse 8 where he said, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He is deeply and intimately connected with this church family, and it's really clear to see in the way that he writes. They are Paul's joy and crown. The Philippian Christians are Christ's workmanship, after all, united with Jesus and being shaped into Christ's image. That's why they are his joy as he delights in the work of Jesus in their lives. Their faith is his reward or crown, if you like, as he presses on in the race. He finishes this call to stand firm with dear friends. And we see again this deep love that Paul has for them. Stand firm, dear friends. There is nothing I want more for you than to stand firm in Jesus. As I look around here today, I'm struck that we as the local church are to have this same Uh, love for one another, encouraging our brothers and sisters to stand firm in the Lord in this same way. Stand firm is Paul's way of saying, grow up in Jesus, get on with it. And we're to do that together, encouraging each other as we go. So this loving affection is also the context for the next two verses Our first example of standing firm, stand firm by agreeing in the Lord. So verses 2 and 3. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, be of the same mind in the Lord. 
Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So we don't know the specific disagreement here, but we do know that it was significant enough for Paul to address it up front and publicly. He named those involved. This was not dealt with in private. We also know that these two women were actively serving to advance the gospel. Paul uses a gladiatorial term here, meaning they fought side by side with me. These women were fellow gospel partners, true Christians whose names were in the book of life. Disunity is altogether too common in churches and too important for us to ignore. That's not saying that we must agree on absolutely everything, but we need to agree in the Lord on the important stuff. We see that there are bigger and more important things at stake than whatever our disagreement might be. We as the local church are on about Jesus, and that's our primary mission. In Christ, we are united. Our relationship with him is what brings us together as one under him. As a church, we're not creating unity, but we're simply maintaining the unity that we already have in Jesus so that we can effectively proclaim him to the watching world. But conflict is hard and it hurts. It might start out small, some minor disagreement, grumbling, complaining, gossip and the like, but if left unchecked, Conflict can lead to real and lasting damage, both relationally and for the advancing gospel. That's why Paul is so upfront about addressing conflict between these two women. Disunity is altogether too common in churches and too important to ignore. Notice with me the pattern we see here in dealing with conflict. Firstly, from verse 1, we've already seen his deep love for them. And next, he personally pleads with each one to agree in the Lord. He's not commanding them as an apostle, you must get along. But he's coming alongside and he's pleading in love for them to see the bigger picture. Next, he asks his true companion to help. And we don't know who this is referring to, but it may be a local church leader. And he doesn't tell them how to resolve this issue, but he leaves it up to the local church to lovingly address conflict and restore these two believers to unity in Christ. The implication for us today is that we need each other. That's the pattern for us to follow. Should disunity in Christ come along here, we're not to avoid it, but we first seek to agree in the Lord, to agree on what's most important. And if we see someone complaining about another with some unresolved conflict, we encourage them to seek restoration. We ask how we can pray for them and we take it to the Lord together. And when appropriate, we ask others to help, to come alongside gently and restore a broken relationship. That's the picture of the local church being there for one another, maintaining the unity that we have in Jesus for his name's sake. So continuing now in point two, stand firm by rejoicing in the Lord. Verse four, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So having first said, stand firm in the Lord, and then to Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, now he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. Yet again, the theme of joy comes up in this letter to the Philippians. But remember the context here. Paul is writing from prison under the threat of death to a church who are suffering external and internal pressure with conflict between Christians in the church. And yet he says, rejoice. At a quick read, it's like a defiant, no matter the circumstances, we rejoice anyway. But interestingly, there's an object for our rejoicing and it has nothing to do with our circumstances. This is not a call to just be happy no matter what's going on in life, but a call to rejoice in the Lord, to find our delight in him. That's what enables us to live with joy above our circumstances. That kind of Christ-focused joy goes against our self-focused nature of hiding and avoiding. It's a joy that's founded in our relationship with the great and glorious God who saves. Remember what we are saved from. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. On the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved to make us his own, to lift us from death to life and life in its fullness. Though we go on in this life with struggles and difficulties, we look forward to an eternity with the Lord where we will see Christ face to face. We have a future hope and a wonderful hope it is, but this verse goes further. To rejoice in the Lord always is to experience this life-giving hope now. To grow in our relationship with the living God and to rejoice in him now and continue to rejoice in him no matter what tomorrow holds. Joy in the Lord here leads to gentleness towards others, no longer quarrelsome, contentious or self-seeking, but humble and concerned for others because of our unity with Christ. This gentleness, we read, is to be evident to all. We are to be known as a gentle people. Have you thought about being known for your gentleness? I'm not sure gentle describes me well when I think someone has wronged me or when I feel misunderstood. We can probably all think of scenarios that we can grow in our gentleness. A good help may be in the very next sentence, the Lord is near. This could be read in two ways. Firstly, it might be referring to Jesus returning soon. And if so, he will come in justice. We don't need to be vengeful or fight for our own sense of justice. We can be gentle as God has everything under his control. Secondly, this could be read as God is personally near us all the time, in which case, in God's presence, how could we be anything but humble? Remembering the Lord is near is helpful as we seek to grow in gentleness as we find our joy in him alone. And Lord willing, we might be a people that are known for it. Look with me now at our third point, stand firm through anxiety. Verse 6 and 7. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Surely this can't be done. Never being anxious about anything, ever. But this passage is not saying that we will never worry. Instead, it's saying when worries come along, this is what we should do. We pray. When we are overwhelmed, when we are consumed by our concerns, we pray. When everything gets on top, when we're battered and weary, where else have we to go but prayer? Carson writes, I am yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. Resolving not to worry is not the answer, but turning our worries into prayer is. We don't deny the existence of our anxieties. We don't try to escape them by some distraction. Instead, we go to Jesus and we remember all that he is and all that he's done. And in our thankful rejoicing in him, we lay our worries at his feet. First Peter 5 verse 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When did you last pray at length about the things that worry you? When did you last spend serious time alone before God in prayer? I've reflected on this myself, and if I'm honest, I'm pretty good at avoiding my worries. I might say to myself that I don't struggle with anxiety, but by avoiding my worries and by extension avoiding prayer about those worries, I'm not growing in maturity. I'm not growing in humility, and I'm not growing in dependence on the Lord. My avoidance of worries actually deprives me of opportunities to grow in my relationship with God. I might pray regular, short, and dare I say, surface-level prayers. I might be very happy to pray for other people's needs, but praying at length about the things that really worry me, well, that usually comes after a long period of bottling things up after I've reached some sort of breaking point or after my dependence on self has been exhausted, where the only place I have left to go is prayer. Instead, in the everyday struggles and in our hardest, deepest struggles, in every situation we read, we ask God for help with a thankful heart, even while we're going through really hard stuff. In Jesus, we can pray for the seemingly impossible. And what comes next? He meets us where we're at. The peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. This is an amazing truth. It's not that when we pray, our circumstances will necessarily improve. They might but that we are better equipped to deal with them in God's peace. Through prayer, the peace of God protects our hearts and minds against anxiousness. 
garrisons us against a lack of contentment, guards us against a lack of trust in Jesus. And this peace of God transcends understanding. Paul's saying that in Christ there is a peace that goes beyond our finite minds, that exceeds our strategies of positive thinking, that achieves more than our anxious thoughts that we need to come up with the right solution. We can experience this peace in a way we can't even explain. This is a really wonderful truth to hold on to. But it is not something we can experience if we continually hide in the blanket for it when things get tough. Let's take a moment to reflect here. Think about the place that you go to distract yourself and avoid the problems of life. What does it really offer? If our default posture is to hide, then we'll miss out on the depth of this promise. The alternative is better. It's far, far better. God's peace meets us where we are at, and in his grace and mercy, he lifts us up. He cares. He gives us what we really need. We get to experience more of his loving character. And so we pray. Next up, our fourth point, standing firm in what we think about. Verses 8 and 9, if you've got your Bibles. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul finishes with where God's peace leads us, what we are to think about, a list that helps us stand firm in the Lord, helps us to agree in the Lord, helps us to rejoice in the Lord and in our anxiousness to go to the Lord in prayer. And it's a wonderful list. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, Anything that is good and is worthy of a responsive praise to God, think about that. When we have some conflict in our lives, when we have worries and anxieties that creep in and take over, these are all the things that we forget to think about. When we're in a hard spot, we do get disoriented, and this is just the sort of reminder that we need, just the sort of reminder that we should be giving to each other, steering us back to the Lord, back to prayer, back to dependence on him. If you think of your mind like a cup with a limited capacity, what are you filling it up with? Wherever we run to distract ourselves, when we fill our minds with things that are not good for us, we are not filling our minds with truth. When you reach for your phone first thing in the morning to catch up with all the news feeds, you're adding more festering filth to the cup. And these excellent and praiseworthy things spill out and are replaced. Instead, we are to open God's word again and again and again. We meditate on it and burn it into our hearts. We pray that God would help us find our joy in him and not in some other thing. That he would guard our minds against distractions. We fill our mind's cup with all that is excellent and praiseworthy.
That's what it means to stand firm with our thoughts. And finally, Paul urges the Philippians to stand firm in following his example, echoing his call from back in chapter 3. Things they may have learned, received, heard, or seen in Paul, they should put into practice. This is the pointy end of his letter. Today we've unpacked God's word and his instructions for us to stand firm in Jesus, be unified in him, rejoice in him, turn our anxiety into prayer, and to fill our minds with all that is good. We've read how through relationship with Jesus, the God of peace meets us where we're at in our struggles. And now in God's peace and power, he asks us to put it into practice, to stop hiding from our struggles, but to stand firm in Jesus. That together we might grow in our dependence, trust, and joy in him. How about we pray in response? Lord God, we want to thank you for this passage today, written to a church who was struggling. Lord, at times we struggle too. And in our struggles, we often distract ourselves from the hard stuff of life with things that are not good for us. Lord God, help us to stand firm in Jesus no matter what our circumstances are. Help us to grow up in him. Help us to be unified in what we're on about here as your church. Help us to find our joy in you and in you alone. Help us to go to you with all of our worries because you care. Help us to fill our minds with all that is good. And help us to put into practice this example that we have before us today in your word. Lord, we thank you that in our weakness, you meet us where we're at. That in relationship with you, we can experience your peace here and now, no matter what our circumstances are. We ask for your help to stand firm in you, as we cannot do this on our own. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.